So all that to say, we're very excited, or very sad to leave St. Louis. Uh, if we could take our apartment and our neighborhood with us, uh, you know, we would, because we really like it here, and obviously we like Church of the Resurrection, uh, and we're grateful to be here. But thank you for all your support, and your, uh, I'm sure I'll be hopefully receiving some prayers for our upcoming move, uh, as that stresses me out more than it should. I just hate moving. Uh, it's because I have too many books, is the reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, Ben offered to take them off my hands. That's uh, very gracious of him. Uh, well, first of all, I'd invite you to uh, open your pew Bible or your personal Bible to Isaiah 65, uh, which is where we'll be this morning. And so as Ben hinted at, it's an odd Sunday uh, because we're wedged between uh, the U.S. election, which has dominated our thoughts for many weeks and months leading up to it. Uh, and at the same time, now I got this wrong in first service, and Maureen was gracious enough to correct me. Not during the sermon, but after it. And uh, we're two weeks out from Advent, but that's the sandwich we're in here. But it actually works better because next Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. So we have our election turmoil followed rapidly by Christ the King, and then Advent. Um, And so this Sunday, we're at sort of a crossroads. Uh, The scripture this morning is taking our fears and anxieties, and it's offering a solution uh, in, the, in the world to come, while challenging us to live in light of that in the present. And so there's this interesting phenomenon. I, I spent way too much time reading articles about this uh, yesterday because I, I keep hearing about it uh, every election cycle, and it's getting worse and worse. So there's this new thing. According to the, the APA, which is the American Psychological Association, 54% of adults in America consider election season to be somewhat to very significant sources of stress. 54% of Americans find that their personal day-to-day lives have more stress in them because of the election. And I would tell you the rest of the 46% is stressed by the 54%. So if you're not part of one problem, you're part of someone else's problem. But this stress is something that we think about. This was another article. They said this stress, we think about it, and we think, okay, well, that's only every four years. And someone said, actually, if you look at, in terms of the news coverage and the campaigning, the U.S. election cycle is now about 18 months long, and, and, and it's every four years. So this is pretty much in our face all the time. And, and so there's, they've um, coined this term, the therapist Stephen Sanzi. He uses the term election stress disorder. ESD, Election Stress Disorder. And so he was asked to describe it in an interview. I think this one was with the Washington Post. I was all over the place. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but this is all from uh, Stephen Sanzi. He says, On the surface, it feels like irritability and resentment, covering up anxiety and a sense of powerlessness. It creates a tendency to blame, oversimplify, and devalue others' perspectives. If you listen to political stories on the radio while you're driving, you're more likely to drive aggressively. At work, it will be harder to concentrate without blaming coworkers or supervisors. At home, you won't be as sweet to your spouse or kids as you might otherwise be. He goes on, he says, If you're driving and you're listening to political news, look down at the speedometer, you're probably going 15 miles over. (laughs) Or if there's too much traffic, you're probably tailgating. And this is the key. He says, low-grade anger activates every muscle group. If you get irritated at something the jerk on the radio says, it's, general, it's a general central nervous system response. 
And so this is where this, this comes from, but, and we feel this, don't we? Uh, if, if not in yourself, then in someone else. I'm sure we can all think of someone. Uh, but I think what he said that captured it best is that it's the sense of powerlessness. That's why we have this anxiety. This is why we have this fear. It's, it, that's our source of frustration when it comes to politics, elections, and the world in general. It's to feel like we can't really do that much. Um, you watch it for 18 months, you show up and vote one day. Uh, so what are we to do about it? Well, the APA, the American Psychological Association, offer, also offered a solution to that, and we'll see how satisfactory we find the solution. This is from uh, Lynn Bufka, the Executive Director for Practice, Research, and Policy at the American Psychological Association. Her advice is, turn off the newsfeed. Stop reading everything if it just gets you more stressed. End quote. And so <laughs> I'm going to suggest to you that while this sounds like great advice, this actually doesn't give you hope to just turn it off. So if you just turn off the TV and stare at the wall, I would not say you're having a more productive day. Uh, hope would be turning to something instead, something, something better, an alternate narrative for understanding uh, the events of our world. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The solution that the Bible offers and this passage offers is hope. And I always like to make this distinction that biblical hope is different than, I think, a lot of times how we use it in our vernacular. And the way that I distinguish these two is I call one biblical hope, and I'm from Cincinnati, and I call the other one Bengal hope, which is, or you might know it as Ram's hope. Um, but Bengal hope is if you ask a Bengals fan at the beginning of every season, are they going to win the Super Bowl? They say, well, I hope so. And what that is is that's, that's wishing. That's like asking a genie. That's wish fulfillment. They've never won a Super Bowl in their franchise. They're terrible. Um, they're not going to win. They're 3-4 and four right now. But there's this Bengal hope that, well, we hope it'll happen. It's just, you know, if I could have my way, that's what would happen. And I think that's how a lot of us see hope. But in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of hope, it's talking about something different. It talks about something that you're certain will happen and you're waiting for. It's, this is the outcome that, I'm a, that I know will happen, and I'm waiting for it. I'm living into it. I'm starting to live in light of it, and it shapes the way that I live. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later, but... Uh, that's what I mean by hope, and that's what the Bible is offering here with hope. So now we're going to turn to Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. And I have to say, there's, there's nothing like picking up a 66-chapter book right at the end, which is what we're uh, doing this Sunday. We've been mostly going through Luke in the lectionary, but uh, these have been readings have been present all along. And so I wouldn't recommend this for a novel, uh, you know, picking up chapter 65 out of 66 and starting there. Um, so we're going we're gonna to kind of summarize and catch you up on where it's been just to give you, paint the context here. Um, and so one commentator, he said he offers the, the shortest possible summary of the book of Isaiah. This is tweet-sized, and it's for a very large book. He says, if you want the shortest possible summary, it's keep justice and do righteousness. Now, we're going to flesh it out a little bit more. Um, but the context here... There's two different contexts, actually, in Isaiah of the, over the span of which it was written. The latter half, the people of Israel find themselves in Babylonian captivity or in exile. And, and what this means is um, God's people have been defeated. They've been conquered. They're being uh, ruled by um, an enemy, uh, a foe, who does not share their you know, religious or political or any other convictions about their worldview or the way that they live. And so these people are feeling hopeless. 
And so, in short, the people of God are frequently being distracted from the promises of God because they're worried about uh, the culture they're living in and not being their own. And so they compromise their religious convictions and practices because of that foreign culture. And so, in a way, we can kind of relate, can't we, to their situation. We feel like uh, our worldview of our culture does not always reflect the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, um, and so we feel, you know, sometimes attacked, sometimes worried, sometimes anxious. Uh, and so in that sense, we, we share their feeling. Now, I propose to you that living in Babylon is far worse for the people of God than living in America. But I'll let you read the rest of Isaiah and see what you think in uh, Jeremiah while you're at it. Um, but this is, a, this is a long passage. And so I think there's, uh, we're just going to read through it together. I'm going to point out a couple things as I read it, starting in verse 17 here. Uh, and then there are some themes that we're going to talk about. There's, we're going to read it, three themes, and then we're just going to glimpse at Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, and then uh, we're done so the, the clock keeper can keep track of my sermon. Uh, so verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now, this, is, um, this whole passage is poetic language. But poetic doesn't mean false. Poetic just is a way of describing the prose. Um, and what we hear here is that there's, there's no sense of being tentative. There's no lack of certainty in the way this is happening. God is speaking about the future as if it's already a done deal. That's the perspective we're getting. That's how sure this passage speaks about uh, the future. And so he says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Verse 18, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So here's uh, one of the famous promises that we hear that there will be no more weeping. And then he keeps, he keeps going. It gets better. Uh, no more shall there be in it an infinite who lives only but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, uh, for for like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants will be with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. So I just want to pause here, and I think this is a very familiar concept to us as Christians, uh, maybe more so than the original audience, all this has always been the character of God, but he wants this deep, personal, intimate relationship uh, with each one of us and with us as a people. And that's what's being promised here. He says, before you call, I will answer. That's, that's the God of Christianity. That's the God of the Bible that we're seeing here. And this is the, the hope of the world to come. This is what will happen according to God. And then finally, verse 25, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. And the other thing you might notice there, dust being the serpent's food, is an, as an echo back to Genesis 3.15. Where, and so what we see is he's coming roundabout with all these promises, and he says it's proof of God's redemptive purposes have succeeded. That's everything God said will, will come to pass has come to pass. And so you may be saying still, well, this is, you know, this is a great passage, but you're still just kind of dropping us in the middle of the story here. And I thought, you know, I, re- I have all my commentaries and all these other resources, and uh, for some reason I never think to pick up one of the most valuable resources in my library, which is the ESV Study Bible. And if you need a gift to give someone this Christmas, buy that for them, uh, especially if they need also an arm workout, because it's like 2,500 pages, and you can do curls with it. Uh, but they offer these brilliant introductions to each book of the Bible, and, and this one has 13 themes listed for Isaiah. And so I just picked out three of those that I think are particularly relevant to uh, where we are in this passage and, and what we're talking about uh, this morning. And so uh, as we enter chapter 65, we're coming off a string of passages in, in chapter 42, 49, 50, 52, 53, and 63 uh, that it should strike you as familiar. So here's, here's the idea. This is the quote from the introductory notes. It says, The only hope of the world is bound up in one man, the promised Davidic king, the servant of the Lord, the anointed preacher of the gospel, and the lone victor over evil. And so it shows you this is the means by which God achieves all of this, and then here's the future that we're, that's being painted for us in chapter 65. So, uh, we get to see the unfolding of that. And on this side of the cross, we recognize all those figures as one person in Jesus Christ. He is, he is uh, the servant of the Lord, the promised Davidic king, the anointed preacher of the gospel, and the lone victor over evil. Now, the second theme uh, for the book of Isaiah that we encounter in this passage, he says it like this. It says, God will uphold, uphold his cause with a world-transforming display of glory. You can see that in chapter 4, 11, 35, 40, 52, 59, 60, and 66. It's all over the place. And so that's, that's the, the water we're swimming in in this, in this book. Is, uh, God will uphold his cause with a world-transforming display of glory. And so this is where, when I noted the, the language of the passage earlier, there's not this tentative sense about it. There's not this, I might do this, I'm trying to do this, if you elect this person, I'll do this. This is God's agenda. This is, God is ruling over the world. He's actively ruling. He has a plan for the world, and he's showing us where this is headed. This is a different story about the unfolding of the world's events than what we're used to hearing, than what the people of Israel were telling themselves. And the final theme that I'd like to point out is uh, it's worded like this. It says, God's past faithfulness and the certain, certainty of his final victory will motivate his people towards prayer and practical obedience now. So God's past faithfulness and the certainty of his final victory will motivate the way that we act now. And so the basic idea, as you may guess, is because uh, at this point in, in the Bible where we are, God has already proven himself to be reliable and faithful to his promises with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, uh, and countless others. And because of that, we can trust God's promises. We can trust what he's saying to us now because we've seen what he does. He has a perfect track record with his word. 
And, and so because he can be trusted, we can respond as if, he, as if he already has. We can respond as if all these things have come to pass. Uh, if you look again at, at chapter 65, it says there will be no more uh, stealing and killing. We'll have intimate fellowship with God. And the great news is that we can start living like that now. That's God's reign. That's God's rule. His people living according to his law and, um, and, and starting to enjoy the benefits of this world to come now. And so I mentioned, uh, you don't even have to turn there, but I mentioned Luke 21. And this is actually, I was going to avoid this passage because I know how messy it can be. And, uh, and Ben called me and, and he passed some wisdom on to me that I thought I would share. So this is Ben's wisdom, but I think you heard it from a, another pastor. So it's, it's God's truth. It's God's wisdom. Um, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but, but many people read this passage, understandably so, like it's, a, it's about the end times. It's this cataclysmic world-ending event. Uh, but I and a host of commentators would suggest to you that this is actually Luke's version for Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the Jewish temple. Now, why is that important? Uh, and, and this is, Luke hints at it in, in verse 5, in, in case you're doubting me. Uh, he, he does this thing. It's Luke's gospel is like the easiest one because it's like it got a built-in commentary. Uh, every time he's about to talk to a group of people and tell a parable, he introduces the people in the audience, and those are usually the characters in the parable. Uh, and, and here he tells you what is about to be discussed. He talks about the temple. And so we don't have time to dispute the nature of this, but there's one aspect of this I want to highlight. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple within the lifetime of the apostles, and the temple is destroyed by the Romans around 70 AD. Thus, Jesus here is validated as a prophet. So not only can we trust what God has to say about the future, but we can trust what Jesus has to say about the future. He's proven himself to be a reliable and trustworthy source for speaking about the future. And, uh, and that's, that's important for us as we are followers of Jesus, as we continue to read the Bible, and we do see uh, still-to-be-fulfilled promises in the New Testament. We now know that our source is reliable, both uh, Jesus and God the Father in Isaiah. And so uh, I was trying to think of the, the best way to, to round this out. And uh, I just want to ask how many of us have uh, lived and more importantly drive a car in St. Louis for more than 10 years? I've only been here three. Let's lower the bar. Three years. Okay, three years. So I've been able to notice something in three years. Uh, I would say the, uh, the worst part of my week is my 8.30 a.m. commute from Tower Grove to Creve Corps because on I-64, right at 170, where it you know, cuts up north of the airport, there's always someone in the left lane about 100 yards before there that realizes that they need to be on 170. And they do this very fast suicide diagonal drift across all of the lanes. And every time I clench my fist on the steering wheel, I'm like, where are you going? And what I mean is, did you not know that you were getting off there? Did, did, was this news just given to you like five seconds ago? Because that's how they act. And in fact, I've even identified one of the cars. It's a reoccurring car that does that. But I don't have the license plate yet. I've still got a month. That's beside the point. The question I want to know is did you not know that was your exit? Did you not know that's where you're getting off? Did you not know that's where you're going? Because if you knew that's where you're going, your actions should reflect that. 
And so that's what this passage is saying to us. It says, if you know where you're going, if you know the end God has in store, your life should reflect that. If, if Isaiah 65 is God's future, if that's what he has in store for us, and, and along with the other promises in the Bible, then our lives right now should reflect that. And so you have to ask yourself, is your life characterized by the hope that God offers to his people and his creation, or is your life characterized by the tides of culture and politics in the world? And so I think the challenge to all of us, myself especially, from this passage in Isaiah is, how would your life, your outlook, your attitude, your mood uh, be different if you let God's view of the world dictate your attitude? And so here's a healthy diagnostic I came up with. Um, this is just this is a freebie. I'm just going to give this to you. Uh, so on one hand, if the election season that we just came out of causes you to think that one party or one person will be the end of the world, then you're not giving God enough credit for his rule over the world. If you think one person or one party will be the destruction of, of the world as you know it, then you're not giving God enough credit for the way he rules the world. If, on the other hand, the election causes you to think that one party or one person is the savior of the world, then you're not giving God enough credit for what he's already done. God has already instituted the salvation of the world. That's already unfolding. God has done that 2,000 years ago, and it's unfolding before us. That's the story that the Bible's telling us. That's the, the chapter that we're in is the unfolding of that. And, and that's, we know the last chapter. We, we know where we are. We know the last chapter. And so what if this was your story? What if this is your narrative? This is where you find your sense of purpose and meaning in this world, rather than some nearsighted pundit on TV. And so as Christians, we're free to engage in politics. You can and should vote. You should discuss and debate with others. But you can't forget for a minute that in the end, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only cure for election stress disorder. In fact, all disorders. But if you have this election anxiety, that's the cure. It's not more of, of what's giving you the ailment. It's the only solution, which is a better storyline for the world. And so I know um, we're, we're getting ready to enter Advent, and this is a custom at Lent, is to give something up. But I would challenge you to actually give something up for Advent for a change. Uh, so whether it's, it's the news, social media, or, or water cooler talk with friends about the world or politics or whatever, I would challenge you to take this season to listen to what God has to say about where this world is heading before letting some other person tell you the way the world is going. I'm not saying cut that out altogether, but I am saying if you spend uh, one to three hours a day watching the news and five or less minutes a week reading the Bible, you're not giving God his fair say in the events of the world, in the, in the events of your life. So my challenge to you is if Maybe even split it 50-50. If you take an hour to watch the news, take 30 minutes to watch news, 30 minutes to read God's word. They are offering different storylines about where this world has come from, where it is going, what the problems are, and more importantly, what the solution is. Uh, and so that's a challenge for me, too. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I have that down and I spend more time in the Bible every day than I do listening to my idiot friends, but, uh, and my smart friends, but, uh, you know, uh, so, so what, we, what we see in the end, in this passage, uh, towards the end of the book, and I encourage you if, you, if you've not studied it in a while or haven't never read it, just read through the book of Isaiah and watch this progression unfold and see some familiar patterns in human behavior. 
Um, there's nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says. But what God shows us here is he says this is a time and place of peace and justice. And we know in Luke's passage that Jesus' words about the future are reliable. God's words in Isaiah are reliable. God is faithful. That's his character. That's his pattern. And that's what we've witnessed in our own lives. And so we can trust him with our futures. Would you please join me in prayer?